Welcome to Mysteries Abound, a collection of stories about the unusual, the strange, the perplexing, and the downright odd. In our world today, Mysteries Abound. Welcome everyone to the Mysteries Abound podcast. This is your host Paul and this is episode 158. First up this week comes a story from the sciencealert.com website. And this study won the 2017 Ig Nobel Prize in Physics. Scientists finally answer the important question. Are cats a liquid? And this is written by Mark Antoine Faden. A liquid is traditionally defined as a material that adapts its shape to fit a container. Yet, under certain conditions, cats seem to fit this definition. This somewhat paradoxical observation emerged on the web a few years ago and joined the long list of internet memes involving our feline friends. When I first saw this question, it made me laugh and then think. I decided to reformulate it to illustrate some problems at the heart of rheology, the study of the deformations and flows of matter. My study on rheology of cats won the 2017 Ig Nobel Prize in Physics. The prizes are awarded every year by Improbable Research, an organisation devoted to science and humour. The goal is to highlight scientific studies that first make people laugh, and then think. A ceremony is held every year at Harvard University. What is a liquid? At the centre of the definition of a liquid is an action. A material must be able to modify its form to fit within a container. The action must also have a characteristic duration. In rheology, this is called the relaxation time. If we take cats as our example, The fact is that they can adapt their shape to their container if we give them enough time. Cats are thus liquid if we give them the time to become liquid. In rheology, the state of a material is not really a fixed property. What must be measured is the relaxation time. What is its value and on what does it depend? For example, does the relaxation time of a cat vary with its age? In rheology, we speak of thixotropy. Could the type of container be a factor? In rheology, this is studied in wetting problems. Or does it vary with the cat's degree of stress? One speaks of shear thickening if the relaxation time increases with stress, or shear thinning if the opposite is true. Of course we mean stress in the mechanical sense rather than emotional, but the two meanings may overlap in some cases. The Deborah number and the flow of mountains. What cats show clearly is that determining the state of a material requires comparing two time periods, 
the relaxation time and the experimental time, which is the time elapsed since the onset of deformation initiated by the container. For instance, it may be the time elapsed since the cat stepped into a sink. Conventionally, one divides the relaxation time by the experimental time, and if the result is more than one, the material is relatively solid. If the result is lower than one, the material is relatively liquid. This is referred to as the Deborah number, after the biblical priestess who remarked that on geological timescales, before God, even mountains flowed. On shorter timescales, one can see glaciers progressively flowing down valleys. Even if the relaxation time is very large, days or years, the behaviour can be that of a liquid if the Deborah number is small, compared to one. Conversely, if the relaxation time is very small, milliseconds, the behaviour can be that of a solid if the Deborah number is large, compared to one. This is the case if one observes a water balloon at the instant when it's popped. The Deborah number is an example of dimensionless number. Since we divide one time period by another, the ratio does not have any unit. In rheology and in science more generally, there are many dimensionless numbers that can be used to determine the state or regime of a material or system. Measuring the speed of cake batter. For liquids, there is another dimensionless number that can be used to estimate whether the flow will be turbulent with vortices or whether it will calmly follow the outline of the container. We say that the flow is laminar. If the flow speed is V and the container has a typical size H perpendicular to the flow, then we can define the velocity gradient V is to H. The inverse of this velocity gradient scales as a time. Comparing this duration and the relaxation time produces the Reynolds number in the case of fluids, dominated by inertia like water, or the Weisenberg number for those dominated by elasticity like cake batter. If these dimensionless numbers are large in comparison to one, then the flow is likely to be turbulent. If they're small in comparison to one, the flow is likely to be laminar. Asking the question of whether cats were a liquid allowed me to illustrate the use of these dimensionless numbers in rheology. I hope that it will make people laugh and then think.
And now something a little less highbrow. From the bathroomreader.com, for those of you who like the vino, the white or the red, five really weird wines. Wine is usually just fermented grape juice, but it could be just about anything. Wines are made out of sunflowers, strawberries and this stuff too, if you're feeling adventurous. Asparagus wine. Oceana County, Michigan is the asparagus capital of the world. That means they've got a lot of the stalky green vegetable that makes urine smell weird with which to experiment. At least local farmer Kelly Fox does. She makes wine out of fermented asparagus. The result is a sweet-tasting white wine, which she sells locally at markets and harvest festivals. Bacon wine. The world has gone crazy for bacon-flavoured things in the past few years, so naturally there's going to be a bacon wine. Napa Valley Cabernet Sauvignon from California is a rich red wine, and during the fermentation process, huge chunks of raw bacon are added into the wine. It's reportedly got an authentic, smoky bacon taste. Jalapeno wine. Pennsylvania's Cardinal Hollow Winery makes a jalapeno wine. And no, they just don't infuse the wine with pepper juice or dump a basket of jalapenos into the wine while it's fermenting. This wine is made entirely out of whole jalapenos instead of grapes. Unsurprisingly, it's said to have a warm and spicy flavour. Bear Bile Wine A particular traditional Chinese medicinal wine that some drink for enjoyment employs a lot of ingredients to get its unique spicy flavour, such as cassia, orange peel, fennel seeds and, of course, bear bile. Some unfortunate bear has to give up that bodily fluid and some unfortunate person has to collect it for the wine, which is said to help lower blood pressure and relieve the symptoms of asthma. And finally, meteorite wine. Tremonti Vineyard is located in Chile, not far from the Atacama Desert, where a meteorite crashed into the earth about 6,000 years ago. It's been dated to be about 4.5 billion years old and dates to the time in which the solar system was formed. Tremonti uses a tiny bit of that meteorite to flavour a Cabernet Sauvignon named Meteorito. Well, there you go. Next time you're out looking for a Merlot, maybe you'll find one of these. think I'll stick to my lovely Australian Shiraz. Beautiful stuff. haven't done much in the way of counting for a while, so from the listverse.com, an article by Joe Drury. Ten unsolved pirate mysteries that will shiver your timbers. Since the advent of sailing, there have been those who've travelled the seas in search of new lands, fortune and hope. However, 
there have also been those with the sole purpose of plundering and destruction. These people are commonly known as pirates. Pirates are notorious for having no mercy and doing almost anything in order to reap a reward. The main era for pirate activity was the 17th to 18th centuries. It ultimately died down due to naval forces becoming too strong to combat, although there are still a number of pirates around today. The last great pirate crews died hundreds of years ago, taking countless mysteries with them to the ocean's murky depths. Number 10 the ghost ship of Topsail Island. A famous strategy used by many pirates centred around Topsail Island was to wait for a ship to pass on the horizon and then chase it down and take the loot. This method proved to be extremely successful as there was a lot of traffic passing the island in the early 1700s. The most infamous pirate to use the method was Edward Teach, alternatively known as Blackbeard a 183-centimetre man known to be a master of physical and psychological warfare. Blackbeard was said to sometimes tie cannon fuses or sulphur matches to his beard as he fought in order to unnerve his opponents and show that he had no fear. While there is a rumour of treasure buried on the island, the most unsettling mystery is how Blackbeard's ship is reported to eerily appear every so often. Some say that if you're sailing with a radar, as you pass Rich's Inlet, you can sometimes notice a blip on the screen sitting inside the cove. When the area is scanned, nothing is there. But as you cruise by, the blip is said to slowly move towards the location of your ship, gaining rapidly in speed as it goes just as Blackbeard's ship did hundreds of years ago. 9. The Treasure of Oak Island A small island lies off the shore of Nova Scotia, Canada. This place is known as Oak Island, and it is the home to an age-old pirate mystery. In 1795, Daniel McGuinness discovered a large unnatural depression in the ground while crossing the land. When the area was dug into, a layer of oak plants was found every three metres below the surface. Below a certain number of planked layers lay a stone with symbols carved into it. These carvings are said to tell of a great treasure buried deep beneath the ground. The planks buried deeper down collapsed when reached, leading to the pit filling with water. This find has led generations of excavators to attempt to access whatever is at the bottom of the pit, but nearly every attempt has ended in disaster. So far, seven have died while endeavouring to uncover the mystery, leading some to believe that the area is cursed. What lies at the bottom of this traitorous pit is still unknown, and possibly always will be. However, a great number believe that it is the treasure of Captain Kidd a pirate known to have been operating in the area at the time, who famously stated that his fortune was buried where none but Satan and myself can find it. It is still a mystery as to how anyone could have secured the contents so well, leaving even 21st century excavators clueless about how to uncover whatever is down there. 
8. Murder at Sea In 2014, a video was released with four unidentified men, believed by some to have been pirates and by others to have been fishermen, clinging to the wreck of an overturned boat. They appear to be holding their arms up in surrender, but the crew of the ship is shown to be shooting at them, while a voice on a speaker shouts, Shoot! 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 The crew appears to be laughing as they pick off the men one by one, and even after the death of the final victim, they pose for pictures on the deck. The identities of these men are still unknown, but what makes this even stranger is how the footage was found on a mobile phone left in a taxi. Despite there being a large amount of witnesses, no one has ever come forward, and the murder of these men still remains a mystery. However, it shows how easy it is for murder at sea to go unnoticed. 7. The Kraken To most, the prospect of a giant squid capable of destroying ships and living at incredible depths would seem like nonsense. However, there may be more to the pirate legend than initially considered. Paleontologist Mark McMenamin thinks that he has found signs of a large squid-like creature by investigating the bones of a 14-metre-long ichthyosaur. The bones are said to have been organised in the same way as octopus species will sometimes arrange bones. And they are also thought to have been under high pressure, indicating that the creature responsible dwelt in an extremely deep part of the ocean. McMenamin has also discovered a more compelling piece of evidence, which comes in the form of a fossilised segment of a giant octopus's beak. Though the legend of the Kraken is a very entertaining one, and was almost certainly based on some form of encounter with a large sea creature, there is no real evidence that it ever existed. Whether it be a product of a drunken sailor's imagination or a tale passed down over generations and distorted into something else entirely, the origin of the mystical behemoth remains a mystery. Number 6. The Cryptogram of Olivier Levasseur In the late 18th century, Pirate Captain Olivier Levasseur, also known as La Buse, was one of the last great pirates roaming the Indian Ocean. He was known to have stolen many items of value and was thought to have a huge haul of treasure. However, he was captured and sentenced to death by hanging. Allegedly, he spoke his final words, Find my treasure, the one who may understand it, and threw a cryptogram into the crowd. To this day, people are still trying to decipher the instructions, with many having given up long ago, believing that the cryptic message was just a joke to lead people on a wild goose chase. However, in the mid-20th century, a breakthrough was made by an Englishman named Reginald Herbert Cruz Wilkins. He had been actively searching for treasure for years, certain that it was buried on the small island of Mahe and was worth around a hundred million pounds. A number of years earlier, Cruz Wilkins had unearthed a number of pirate statues that were buried beneath the ground, but he was adamant that they weren't just statues, but rather a map to where the real treasure was located. 
Reginald finally found the exact location he thought to be the treasure cave and began exploring. Although it required very complex engineering work to ensure that the cave did not get flooded by the ocean water above. While in the cave he was very nearly killed by a rock slide, but he did manage to get away with a flintlock pistol, carved figurines, a 17th century wine jug and a few coins. This was enough evidence to suggest that it was in fact the location of the treasure. However, no one was willing to further fund his project, leaving the treasure's existence a mystery. 5. Pirate Utopia Legend tells of a pirate utopia named Libertalia on a small island off Madagascar. This haven was a pirate republic, anarchist colony, founded in the late 17th century by the pirate captain James Mission. Other founders included the famous pirates Henry Avery and Thomas Tew, the latter being the admiral of Libertalia's fleet of ships. The politics of the haven were generally socialist, with all food and resources being shared, as well as all viewpoints being listened to and laws being created by the people. The pirates went off the motto for God and Liberty and flew a white flag in protest to the Jolly Roger, which typically supports violence. They also were strongly against slavery and freed any slaves they came across, treating them as equals and allowing them to join the enclave. The pirate territory was said to have a fort, a market and housing covering the island. It was also said that the community thrived on the lands, building a full range of buildings including great halls, places of worship and taverns. Charles Johnson's A General History of the Pirates claims that the pirates, renouncing their nationalities, named themselves Liberi and created a new language. Johnson also said that Avery decided on the area of settlement as soon as he saw the bay, for it was an area with fertile soil, fresh water and friendly natives. The utopia was said to have fallen when Tew became stranded, leaving the haven effectively defenceless and leading it to being attacked. Mission and 45 other men were said to have escaped, but they never returned to Libertalia. Number 4. The Green Flash For hundreds of years, men of the sea, some notably pirates, have repeatedly reported a strange phenomenon that has become to be known as the Green Flash. It is said that when the sky and the horizon are both completely clear, a sudden flare of emerald green light can flash across the sky as the sun sets. Reports of the flash go all the way back to the 1600s, with pirates being the ones who reported it most, as they would have had the longest sea voyages. While this phenomenon has a completely rational explanation, pirates claimed that anyone who saw the flash would gain the ability to read the souls of others. 3. The Ghost in the Cave While on holiday in Cornwall, England in 2015, businessman John Dyer accidentally captured something peculiar on his camera. The man had been taking pictures of darkened caves, 
and when he reviewed the images, he spotted a shadowy figure standing towards the back in one picture. The supposed ghost is said to be that of notorious pirate William Wilcox, who operated around that area. It was thought that Wilcox was on the run and decided to hide in one of the nearby caves, but became trapped by the rising tide and was consequently drowned. While most believe the picture contains nothing more than an oddly set-out rock formation, slightly resembling a man, a number of locals are confident that it is indeed the ghost of Wilcox, the subject of many stories they were told as children. 2. Pirate Tunnels Beneath the city of Savannah, Georgia, lies a network of underground tunnels believed to have been used by pirates to smuggle stolen loot and captured sailors. There is said to be a secret tunnel somewhere in the labyrinth leading directly to the location where the ships would have been waiting. Allegedly there is a passage from a building in town known as the Pirate's House that leads straight to the river where small rowboats would have been waiting but it is now inaccessible from the house due to a rock collapse. There are also theories that the Sons of Liberty used to meet in a secret underground cavern that can be reached by the tunnels. Whether these tunnels were used by secret societies or pirates smuggling stolen goods, there is no denying that they are indeed rather strange. And number one, Lake of Bones. Long Island's Lake Ronkonkoma is well known for the mysteries and legends that surround it. One of the more famous mysteries is that of the pirates' victims. Some say that the lake was once connected to the sea through an inlet, allowing pirates to enter the area, hide their treasure and execute prisoners. Stories say that the bottom of the lake has many caves that hold a large amount of hidden treasure that pirates left there long ago. It is also told that the lake contains many skeletons of the pirates' victims, some of which have allegedly been found and pulled from the water, although there is no proof to support this. If the lake really does contain the skeletons of hundreds of pirate prisoners, however, it may be a pointer to the location of treasure hidden there. Although many pirate mysteries lack proof and evidence, they are extremely interesting to speculate about, as very little knowledge exists for a number of them. However, someday, maybe one of us will get lucky and uncover something truly amazing from the ancient world of pirates. And if you'd like to find out a bit more, visit the show notes at origins.info. Click on the link to this article in episode 158 of the Mysteries Abound podcast. There you will find a photograph to go with each article, and contained within each section of the article are links to other parts with more information.
and from one of my favourite websites, the ancientorigins.net website. The Gospel of Satan. The Grand Grimoire is one of the creepiest medieval manuscripts out there. The Grand Grimoire, sometimes referred to as the Red Dragon or the Gospel of Satan, is a medieval grimoire believed to possess immense powers. According to legend, it was written by an apocryphal figure by the name of Honorius of Thebes, who is claimed to have been possessed by Satan himself. The Grand Grimoire is said to be one of the most potent occult books in existence and contains instructions for the summoning of demons. This grimoire is often said to have been written during the 16th century. During the 18th century, when there was a cheap grimoire boom in France, a version of the Grand Grimoire was produced and then published in the following century. The original Grand Grimoire, or a copy of the original, however, is said to be kept today in the Vatican secret archives and is not currently available to the public. Whilst the exact origin of the word grimoire is still being debated, it is generally accepted today that it is derived from the old French word grammaire. The word which means grammar was used as a reference to books in general, especially to those that were written in Latin. Over time, however, the meaning of this term evolved and eventually became associated with the occult. Therefore, the word grimoire is today the name given to the textbooks used in the occult. The contents of such grimoires normally provide its user with instructions for the creation of magical amulets and talismans, instructions for the casting of magic spells and even rituals for the summoning of supernatural beings such as angels or demons. The Grand Grimoire is often regarded to be one of the most potent grimoires in existence. Many sources claim that this grimoire was written in 1520 and was later discovered in a certain tomb of Solomon in 1750. Furthermore, this grimoire is said to have been written in either Biblical Hebrew or Aramaic. This supposed connection with the biblical King Solomon and the ancient language it is rumoured to have been written in would certainly have enhanced the reputation of the Grand Grimoire as a powerful book of magic. The Grand Grimoire consists of four parts and is supposedly being kept in the Vatican's secret archives. According to the legend, the Grand Grimoire was written by Honorius of Thebes who is said to have been possessed by the devil. The occult manuscript is said to contain magic spells as well as a detailed account of how newly elected popes are slowly corrupted and then won over by the power of Satan. One of the most infamous contents of the Grand Grimoire, however, is the instructions that would supposedly allow a person to summon Lucifer. One of the instruments required for this is a blasting rod which would be used to smite Lucifer into submission once he is evoked. After this, a deal with the devil is made. Therefore, the Grand Grimoire also contains a section entitled Genuine Sanctum Regnum, or the true method of making pacts. Among other things, the person conducting this ritual would require a stone called Amatil, and two blessed candles, both of which would be used to form a triangle of packs, so that he, she, may be protected from the spirits that have been summoned. Whilst the original Grand Grimoire, 
or a copy of it is held in the Vatican secret archive. A version of it was produced during the 18th century when there was a boom in the production of cheap grimoires in France. This version of the Grand Grimoire was first published in the 19th century and spread to the different colonies that the French had at the time. As a result of this, the Grand Grimoire is still being used widely in Caribbean countries that were once part of the French colonial empire, in particular Haiti, where it is referred to as Le Veritable Dragon Rouge. And while we're on strange and weird books, from the ancientcode.com this time, an article by Ivan. The Book of Thoth, a sacred ancient Egyptian book that offers unlimited knowledge. It is said that the Book of Thoth contains a number of spells, one of which allows the reader to understand the speech of animals, and one of which allows the reader to perceive the gods themselves. Legend says that he who reads the contents of the book would obtain the means to decipher the secrets and master the earth, the sea, the air and the celestial bodies. One of the most mysterious books to ever have been mentioned in the history of mankind is the Book of Thoth, a sacred and mysterious book of the ancient Egyptians written by an ancient god. According to historical records, The Book of Thoth was a collection of ancient Egyptian texts which were written by Thoth, the ancient Egyptian god of writing and knowledge. They include numerous texts that were claimed to exist by ancient authors and a magical book that appears in an Egyptian work of fiction. The Book of Thoth appears fragmented in diverse papyri, the majority pertaining to the second century of the Ptolemaic period. The Book of Thoth is cited for the first time in the so-called Turis Papyrus, published in Paris at the end of the 18th century, which describes a failed attempt to kill a pharaoh, using a series of spells taken from the Book of Thoth. In addition, there are different versions, although the compilations have led to reconstruct a history common to all of them, basically a dialogue in which there are two interlocutors the god Thoth, and a disciple who aspires to know. Although there is another god, probably Osiris, who also speaks with the disciple. The literary framework could be compared with the Greek Hermetic texts, which also show dialogues between Hermes, Thoth, and his disciples. However, the presence of some texts prior to the first century place it ahead of the first Greek Hermetic philosophical texts. The name Book of Thoth has been applied to numerous texts. Manetho, an ancient Egyptian priest, claimed that Thoth had written 36,525 books, although some investigators like Seleucos affirm that they were around 20,000. The fictional Book of Thoth appears in an ancient Egyptian story from the Ptolemaic period which speaks of a brave ancient Egyptian priest called Nefakaptar who decides to recover the Book of Thoth hidden at the depths of the Nile. The book written by Thoth is said to contain two spells, one of which allows the reader to understand the speech of animals and one of which allows the reader to perceive the gods themselves. 
The book is at the Koptos in the middle of the river. In the middle of the river is an iron box. In the iron box is a bronze box. In the bronze box is a kete wood box. In the kete wood box is an ivory and ebony box. In the ivory and ebony box is a silver box. In the silver box is a gold box. And in the gold box is the book of Thoth. Around about the great iron box are snakes and scorpions and all manner of crawling things. And above all there is a snake which no man can kill. These are said to guard the Book of Thoth. The Fictional Book of Thoth Legends suggest that the book was originally hidden at the bottom of the Nile near Coptus, where it was locked inside a series of boxes guarded by serpents no man could kill. The brave ancient Egyptian prince, Nefercaptor decided to recover it. He fought the serpents and succeeded in retrieving it. But in punishment for his theft from Thoth, the gods killed his wife, Awer, and his son Merib. Nefercaptor eventually committed suicide and was said to have been entombed along with the book. Generations later, the story's protagonist, Setne Kamos manages to steal the book from Nefercaptor's tomb despite fierce opposition from Nefercaptor's ghost. Setne eventually meets a beautiful woman who seduces him into killing his children and humiliating himself in front of the pharaoh. He discovers that what he has seen was in fact an illusion put forth by Nefercaptor, and in fear of further retribution, Setne describes to return the book to Nefercaptor's tomb. At Nefercaptor's request, Setne finds the bodies of Nefercaptor's wife and son and buries them in Nefercaptor's tomb, which is then sealed for eternity. The story is meant to reflect the ancient Egyptians' belief that the gods' knowledge is not meant for ordinary humans to possess. Fragments have been found in Berlin, Paris, Vienna, Florence, Copenhagen and New Haven. It was believed that he who read the contents of the book would obtain the means to decipher and master secrets related to the earth, the sea, the air and the celestial bodies. It also conferred the facility of assimilating the language of animals, giving life back to the dead and acting on distant and nearby minds. The church father, Clement of Alexandria, in his sixth book of his works Dramata, mentions 42 books used by ancient Egyptian priests that he says contain the whole philosophy of the Egyptians. All these books, according to Clement, were written by Hermes, an ancient pre-existing Greek god that the Greeks likened to Thoth, claiming they were one and the same god, due to the fact they had similar qualities. That is, both invented writing. One hundred years before Teddy Ruxpin was chatting it up with adoring kids, Thomas Edison introduced the first talking doll. But instead of designing it to be cute and cuddly, it was creepy and shoddy. 
from the weirdhistorian.com website. A story by Mark Hartsman, who is one of our really good friends of the podcast. Thomas Edison's creepiest invention, the talking doll. The dolls weighed around four pounds, had porcelain heads and wooden limbs. Inside the torso was a variation of the inventor's recent phonograph technology. In 1877, Edison had reproduced sound for the first time with the invention. Now he looked to extend it into a toy. It seemed like a great idea. Just turn the crank and nursery rhymes and other recordings would play. The June 4, 1888 edition of the Daily Argus described a small round object as Edison's latest electrical fad, so to speak. It is a small phonograph to be placed inside of a doll. The machine is placed in a tin case and the case is put inside of the doll. By turning a small crank, the doll will say, Mama, I love you, or anything that the inventor chooses to speak into it when it is made. Not only will the toy be very profitable, but it will add another laurel to the brow of the ingenious inventor. Edison employed a team of women to make the recordings. Thankfully, it was one task he did not take on himself. Unfortunately, sturdy as the wooden limbs were, the mechanics didn't stand a chance against excited kids. The crank fell off easily and the phonograph was fragile. The Thomas Edison National Historical Park reports that in 1889... A seller wrote Edison complaining that the solid wax phonograms used in his sample dolls were very fragile and are, I find, easily broken in changing to and from the phono. He added, I am confident that the more delicate parts now contained in the phono must be removed and more substantial parts substituted, particularly for use in dolls as they will be handled mostly by children who are not, as a rule, very careful. This was just one of the many gripes about the doll's construction. By October of 1890, Edison's doll had fallen $50,000 in debt. The company could no longer afford to manufacture more of the toys or attempt to improve them. The Daily Argus, reporting once again on the doll in February of 1891, changed its tune on the invention. The failure of the experiment will inspire very little regret in the hearts of fathers and mothers. It will be a good deal of money in the pockets of Santa Claus. Moreover, any little girl ought to be satisfied with a doll that has real hair and that can wake up and go to sleep. Dolls that can whistle, cry and sing Annie Rooney can be dispensed with for the present. Dolls have come a long way since, but those wanting one that sings Annie Rooney, the wait continues. And Mark has included a link to a video which plays the haunting voice of Edison's talking doll. Apparently it was quite an effort to get the recording to a state where they could play it back, so if you're interested, click on the show notes, click on the link to this article and have a listen. It is really quite creepy.
Do objects disappear around your home, then inexplicably reappear? You might be a victim of disappearing object phenomena, or DOP for short. What could be the cause? From the thoughtco.com website, an article by Stephen Wagner. Understanding the disappearing object phenomenon. When items disappear and reappear. Typically, DOP involves an object that the person has just been using or that they invariably keep in one particular place. When they go to use the object, it is gone. The person looks high and low for the object, often getting others involved in the search, but it cannot be found. A short time later, or perhaps the next day, the person is surprised to find the object returned to the spot where it is always kept, or in some other obvious place where the search should have found it. What happened here? Where did the object go? Why did it disappear? How was it returned? What forces are at work in this highly strange yet relatively commonplace phenomenon? There are several possibilities, from the mundane to the peculiar to the profoundly bizarre, both psychological and paranormal. When examining such occurrences as DOP, you must first consider the most ordinary possibility that the person simply misplaced the object or forgot where he or she put it. This in fact probably accounts for the vast majority of reported DOPs. For example, a woman always puts her hairbrush in the same place on her dressing table, but now it's not there. It's quite possible that being distracted somehow, she absent-mindedly carried it to another room and put it down on a table. Naturally, when she goes to look for the hairbrush, she's astonished that it's not on the dressing table. And she'll most likely look all around the dressing table, since that is where it is always kept. She might not even think to look in the other room on the table, because why in the world would she ever do such a thing? Yet things like this probably happen more often than we imagine. This DOP possibility falls apart when the hairbrush is later found on the dressing table in its usual spot. Unless the woman was experiencing temporary blindness with regard to this one object, then other possibilities must be considered. The borrower. Here's another mundane but highly possible cause that you must consider if you are to investigate DOP seriously. When the hairbrush has vanished from the dressing table, after her initial search, the woman would quite likely question other members of the household, even though they might deny up and down that they borrowed the hairbrush. It's very plausible that a family member did, in fact, borrow the item. Seeing that mum is upset and perhaps not wanting to get into trouble for borrowing an item they know they shouldn't touch, they'll deny taking it. Then when mum is elsewhere in the house, the borrower sneaks back to the dressing table and returns the brush. And when mum returns to the scene of the crime, the brush has amazingly returned to its proper spot and a household mystery is born. This possibility can be eliminated, of course, if the person lives alone or when other family members are not around when the DOP occurs. The absent-minded and borrower possibilities aren't as exciting or as intriguing as those that follow, but they probably solve a majority of DOP cases. 
We must remember that any paranormal investigation must first rule out the most likely, if pedestrian, explanations for what seems an unexplainable event. Only then can you consider more unusual possibilities. Poltergeist I have all of my grandmother's jewellery boxes and most of her jewellery. Many times I would forget and leave my jewellery out on my dresser or counter, and in the morning they would be gone from the dresser or counter and in one of the jewellery boxes. When disappearing object phenomena, or the DOPs, occur, a lot of people blame a poltergeist, if only half seriously. A poltergeist is usually defined as a mischievous or noisy spirit. Poltergeist activity often includes unexplained noises, music, smells and movement of objects. So when that hairbrush disappears, some people think it must be because of a poltergeist. And some might have more reason to think a poltergeist is responsible than others. This might be the case if the hairbrush incident is not an isolated one. If the person finds that objects are disappearing or being moved on a regular basis, for example or if there are other phenomena such as unexplained smells and noises that the person can associate with the missing item. Sometimes the particular item has a history that gives the person the idea that a spirit is involved. For instance, a watch that belonged to a grandfather might be found to be moved to a certain place on its own, the sort of place that grandfather usually kept it, or like the case of the grandmother's jewellery above. Even though it seems likely to the person that a spirit or poltergeist is responsible, it is still unknown what a poltergeist really is. In case of DOP, is it an actual spirit that has somehow become attached to the object, and by some force that science cannot yet explain, moves or borrows the object? Or does the activity arise from the person's subconscious, or their emotional relationship to the object and its original owner? Temporary Invisibility It was the night of my freshman homecoming. I had brought three dresses a few days or so before and was planning on wearing the simple black and white one. Nothing fancy. I went to my closet an hour or so before the dance to get ready and the dress wasn't in my closet. Nowhere in my closet. Not even with the other two dresses. My mum and I searched everywhere but still couldn't find it. My mum finally said I had to wear one of the others, and so I chose one of the white ones. A day or so after the dance, I went to my closet to find a shirt, and the black and white dress I was going to wear to the dance was the first piece of clothing on the rack. Go figure. Let's again take the example of the woman and her hairbrush. She believes she placed it on the dressing table as always, but it is gone, and she has thoroughly looked for it. There's no one else in the house who could have borrowed it. A while later, it's back on the dressing table. It was Sherlock Holmes in The Adventure of Beryl Coronet who said, It is an old maximum of mine that when you have excluded the impossible, whatever remains, however improbable, must be the truth. Here's an improbable explanation. The hairbrush or the girl's dress temporarily became invisible. There is no scientific hypothesis that allows for an object to become invisible and then after a time becomes visible again. Yet that is exactly the effect as perceived by some DOP experiences. 
as if this temporary invisibility is somehow possible. It raises many questions. How or for what reason does a specific object become invisible? Does the effect have something to do with the person's regular or intimate use of the object? Is it a physical effect produced by some unknown mechanics of the human mind? Sometimes this invisibility can be a strictly psychological phenomenon. The object is really there, but our attention is so diverted that we literally don't see it. It's an example of selective attention. Dimensional shift. I looked everywhere for my car keys. I looked everywhere in the kitchen and living room, just everywhere. Then all of a sudden I heard the keys drop in the kitchen. I went in and there they were on the ground. The existence of dimensions other than the three we jostle around in every day is theorised by science. Sometimes referred to as other planes of existence by the more spiritually minded. These dimensions are sometimes thought of as places where spirits and other forms of reality might reside. Could the temporary invisibility or movement of objects be explained by their slipping into another dimension? Is some kind of dimensional or temporal shift to blame? It's a pretty far-out notion, but then a genuine DOP experience is hard to explain. Even when the rational explanations are ruled out, there are still enough intriguing DOP experiences remaining to remind us that there is much more to this life, this reality, than we are currently aware. And here is one more possibility. The first thing I think of when that DOP happens is fairies, since one of the places I lived in had some. They tended to take things and then give them back later. One time, in full view of a number of people, I was getting ready to leave the apartment, and since I was always in the habit of misplacing my keys, no fairies needed, I had taken to hanging them on a heavy biker wallet chain and had some jangly brass key tags to boot. They weren't where I'd put them, and I had to leave. So I hollered, OK, guys, this isn't funny. I need my keys now. My friends were watching as they materialised out of thin air above the shelf I had my phone answering machine on and clattered to the shelf. I have my own explanation for a DOP. When I lose things at home and I say to my wife, I can't find them anywhere. And a little while later she comes in and finds them, she said, Typical, you've had a boy look. What you really needed was a girl look. Hmm. But maybe now I have other explanations. I like the fairy one the best. I'll see if that'll go down well next time I have a DOP. What do you reckon are my chances? The show notes for the podcast are kept at the Origins podcast website, origins.info. We have a Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash Paul Rexy. 
And the bandwidth for today's podcast is provided by the kind people at TalkShoe, talkshoe.com. You may remember that some time back I said that I've come to some sort of a focal point with regard to producing the Mysteries Abound podcasts, and all my podcasts for that sake. I'd got to the point where I had to decide whether to keep going or just give them away altogether. In the past I had thought about this a number of times, but just kept going because so many people do enjoy them and I do enjoy making them. So rather than giving them away altogether, I have decided to become a bit more professional. So you may know now that once each month I will produce a free podcast such as this episode, which will be available to everyone on whatever podcast feed they use. But two to three times each month I will also produce more episodes of the Mysteries Abound podcast. These I'm putting on the patreon.com website and they will be available to patrons only. So the idea is that you become a patron of the Mysteries Abound podcast and sign up with the patreon.com people. So what happens is when I release a new patrons-only podcast on the Patreon website, your credit card is charged $1 for each new episode. You can make it a larger amount if you wish. And this, of course, will happen two to three times each month. You can access these new podcasts by visiting the Patreon website itself, or when you sign up, you're given your own individual RSS feed, which can be put into any podcast app of your choosing, and every time a new episode is released, it will download through that app. Actually, I'm just listening to that, I should clarify it a little bit. With the billing to your credit card, it will only occur at the end of the month. So if during the month I have released two patron-only podcasts, it would be $2, or if I've done three, it would be $3. So you're not billed each time I release it, it's just at the end of the month and it's the total for that month. Now with the Patreon website, I can offer some more incentives, and the other incentives are these. With my new podcast called Crime Tales, I will release that on the Patreon website to patrons, free of charge, earlier then the rest of the public will get to listen to it. So you'll get it four or five days before everyone else. And with the creepypasta tales, I will still put some of the shorter ones in the Mysteries Abound podcast, but I've decided to make a separate podcast for the longer ones because some of them are really quite long and they do take up a lot of the normal podcast. These longer creepypasta podcasts will be available to patrons only as an incentive to you to become a patron and there will be no charge for these. So remember, the Crime Tales early preview will be free and so will the Creepypasta Longer Stories podcast. And I hope to get these out once or twice a month as well. So if you can support the podcast and help me to become more of a full-time podcaster and produce shows, your help is greatly appreciated. And you can do it through patreon.com forward slash Paul Ricks. If you're not sure of the link, just visit the show notes at origins.info and there is a link there to the Patreon website. Any help you can afford, of course, is greatly appreciated and just helps me to keep going. Thank you everyone for listening. The Disappearance of Cora Crippen And this is from the mutineer.org website. Andrew, who runs this website, is a very good friend of the podcast, so 
If you get a chance, visit his website, read the stories and support him. Themutineer.org And The Mutineer is all one word. A great website if you're interested in these unusual and very well-written tales. Hawley Harvey Crippen was a small, mild-mannered man. At just five feet four inches in height, of slight build and bespeckled. Perhaps the only noticeable feature of this otherwise unremarkable man was his large walrus moustache. His wife, on the other hand, was an extremely noticeable individual. Cora Crippen was an unsuccessful music hall singer who liked to have a good time. Of stout build, heavy drinking and promiscuous, Cora dominated her husband and humiliated him with a string of adulterous relationships. Cacolded and brow-beaten, the lot of Hawley Harvey Crippen was not a happy one. Dr Crippen, as he preferred to be known, was born in Coldwater, Michigan, in the United States in 1862. He obtained qualifications in homeopathic medicine and began a practice in New York City, where he met and married his second wife, Cora, in 1894. In 1897, the couple moved to London, England, despite the fact that Crippen's qualifications were insufficient to permit him to practice as a medical doctor in the United Kingdom. Nevertheless, he continued to use the prefix doctor, whilst actually working as a dispenser of medicines. In 1899, he became the manager of an institution for the treatment of the deaf, where in about 1903... He met a young typist by the name of Ethel Lenivy, but more of her shortly. Despite the move to England, Cora's music hall career, under the stage name of Belle Elmore, remained in the doldrums. And so it was on Dr Crippen's modest income that the couple were mostly reliant. In 1905, the doctor and wife took up residence at 39 Hilldrop Crescent, Camden Road, in the London suburb of Holloway where, in order to supplement Crippen's meagre earnings, they took in lodges. It was upon returning home one day that Crippen discovered his wife in flagrante with one of them. Mild-mannered he may have been, but this latest act of adultery caused Crippen to look elsewhere for solace. And so it was then at about 1908 he began a relationship with Ethel, the typist he had met some five years earlier. The dysfunctional marriage stumbled on for a couple more years until things came to a head following a party at 39 Hilldrop Crescent on the 31st of January 1910. The following day, Dr Crippen announced that his wife had decided to return to the United States for an extended holiday, later adding that she had sadly passed away whilst there and had been cremated in California. In the meantime, Crippen had moved Ethel into Hilldrop Crescent, and she was even seen wearing clothing and jewellery belonging to Cora. Friends of Cora grew suspicious and asked the police to investigate. The house was duly searched, and Crippen interviewed by Chief Inspector Walter Dew of Scotland Yard. Nothing untoward was uncovered by the search, and Crippen admitted to Dew that he had made up the story about Cora being dead, claiming that she had actually left him and gone to America with a lover. His fabrication, he maintained, was due to the shame he felt at his wife's immoral behaviour. 
The Chief Inspector was quite happy with Crippen's explanation and planned to take no further action in the case. However, the intervention of the police appears to have panicked Crippen, as the following day both he and Ethel took flight. They travelled firstly to Belgium, from where they boarded an ocean liner named the SS Montrose, bound for Canada. Naturally, Jew's suspicions were raised by Crippen's sudden disappearance, and as a result he decided to carry out a more detailed search at Hilldrop Crescent. Upon lifting the brick floor of the basement, the pungent odour of rotting flesh immediately filled the room, and the police uncovered a human torso, minus head, limbs and sexual organs. The torso was identified by a pathologist as belonging to Cora Crippen due to the presence of a scar that corresponded with an operation she had undergone. Unsurprisingly, the murder investigation, as it now was, became a media sensation and the hunt to track down Crippen and Ethel was on. Meanwhile, Henry George Kendall, captain of the SS Montrose, had had his attention drawn to the unusual behaviour of two of the passengers. A Mr Robinson travelling with his teenage son was seen to be acting in an overly affectionate manner towards the boy, giving the pair the appearance of a courting couple. Alerted to the hunt for the fugitives, Kendall immediately saw through their flimsy disguise. As the ship was still just within wireless range of the United Kingdom, he alerted the British authorities of their presence on the ship by the way of a telegram. Chief Inspector Dew wasted no time and quickly boarded the SS Laurentic, a faster liner than the Montrose, sailing from Liverpool, England to Quebec, Canada. The story was now headline news around the world, with sexual impropriety, a gruesome murder, lovers fleeing in disguise and a race across the Atlantic. This one seemingly had it all. Newspapers carried daily updates on the progress of the Laurentic against the Montrose. Crippen and Ethel had now become infamous overnight and they were just about the only ones who didn't know it. To the undoubted relief of the Chief Inspector, the Laurentic arrived in Quebec ahead of the Montrose and Dew quickly notified the Canadian authorities of his intention to apprehend the wanted duo. As soon as the Montrose entered the St Lawrence River, the British Bobby boarded the ship, disguised as a river pilot. Dr Crippen and Ethel de Neve were arrested on the 31st of July 1910 and brought back to England to face trial for the murder of Cora Crippen. The case thus became the first time that fugitives had been apprehended by the use of the wireless telegraph. Throughout his trial, Crippen maintained that his wife had merely left him and gone to live in the United States with her lover. He further contended that, as they had only lived at 39 Hilldrop Crescent since 1905, the remains discovered must have been placed under the cellar floor by a previous occupant. He showed little emotion during the proceedings and expressed concern only for the reputation of Ethel. The jury were not convinced by his story and took just 27 minutes to find him guilty of murder. Hawley Harvey Crippen was executed at Pentonville Prison, London at 9am on the 23rd of November 1910. He was 48 years old. The charge against Ethel was merely that of being an accessory after the fact and she was duly acquitted.
In accordance with his wishes, a photograph of Ethel was buried with him. Intriguingly, however, this is not the end of this sad story. For those who like a twist in the tale, this one finishes up in a positive knot. In October 2007, it was announced that a sample of DNA extracted from the scar tissue that had been used to identify the torso in 1910 had been repeatedly tested against samples obtained from grand nieces of Cora Crippen. Not only did they not match, but the presence of a Y chromosome in the sample from the deceased indicated that the remains were not even that of a woman. So, if the body in the basement was not that of Cora, who was the mutilated victim? And what of Cora? Did Dr Crippen really murder his wife? If so, what did he do with her? Or is it possible that he was telling the truth after all? Oh dear. Well, good friends, that concludes episode 158 of the Mysteries Abound podcast. Hope you enjoyed today's show. And remember, if you can become a patron of the Mysteries Abound podcast at the Patreon website, your help would be greatly appreciated. Thank you for listening, everyone, and keep safe, keep well, and bye for now.